Step 10 is kind of that entire compilation. It's taking that personal inventory, whether I'm in fear about something, whether I'm having romantic difficulties, whether that I'm resentful that the world isn't treating me the way I think the world should treat me or acting the way I think it should act. Whatever it is, and most things, frankly, fall under those categories. If I am willing to look at those things and then inventory those things and speak to another person about it, and especially is willing to say to me, David, you need to look at yourself here and what's wrong with you, and stop focusing your attention on what's wrong with the rest of the world. These are the principles of inventory that they're talking about in step 10. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Howdy, ladies and gents, from deep in the heart of Texas, that was the voice of my friend, Mr. David G., that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you're going to hear so much more from him about Step 10 in just a moment, but first things first, this episode, episode number 100, by the way, this episode is brought to you by Kathy. You know what Kathy did? Well, she went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. She clicked on the little yellow PayPal donate tab and she made a contribution. Thank you so much, Miss Kathy, for your generosity. This episode, this one right here is for you. And guess what, folks? Like I just alluded to, we are on episode Number 100. Can you believe that? We're on episode number 100. Cinco. No, not Cinco. That's uh, that's five. I don't know what I'm talking about here. Uh, there's uh, always oh, that Spanish word for 100. But nonetheless, we are on number 100. Oh, I am. Uh, I'm just uh, beside myself. And uh, I'm going to read a little quote here. That Oh, by the way, I will be the chairperson for this episode number 100 on this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored to be sitting here and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So I'm going to read a little uh, uh, post from Jonathan in the secret Facebook group, and Jonathan is an grateful Al-Anon member. Well, you know, I guess he's grateful. I'm sure he is grateful, but uh, I just hear so many people introduce themselves that way. I just said grateful Al-Anon member, but nonetheless, he is an Al-Anon member and he says, wow, episode 100 forthcoming. 
Looking forward to to it, John, like all the others. This month marks a year for me and Al-Anon. It's been a year of recovery and working a program with my sponsor and home group. The Sober Speak group and the podcast has been a vital part of my recovery. I'm humble and grateful today. Well, thank you for posting that, Jonathan. And I'm so glad that you have been part of this journey with me. Uh, I feel like I have been part of your journey. You have been part of mine and all the guests that we have brought in here and all of you that are listening in. And I know so, so many of you never write in and uh, or never leave a voicemail or anything like that. And, and that's okay. But I know that you're out there. I see the numbers. I know that you're out there. And I am just so glad that we can all virtually be connected. I feel you in my heart. I feel you in my soul. I want to thank all of you listening out there for giving me purpose, and mainly, I want to thank you for helping to keep me sober one day at a time. This podcast and you guys, or y'all, as we say here in Texas, have meant so much to me. I've learned so much through so many of you I've, that I've met both in person, I've, I've talked to you and had conversations with you on, in Facebook, uh, uh, on Instagram, uh, via email, all have you have been an absolute gift in my life. You know, the book says something about how we are people who would not normally mix, and, and I'm so glad that the fellowship of these 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous in particular for me, uh, gives me the chance to meet also to meet all of you. It, it also says something in the book about uh, if you cling to the thought, oh, let me go find it real quick so I'm not making this up. So, so on page uh, uh, 124, here it is, it says, showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, oh, this is beautiful, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert, you can avert death and misery for them. I'm going to read that last part again. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. So I thank you all for sharing your dark past with me. You have given me the key to life and happiness. And with your dark past, you have helped me to avert death and misery. And I'm so, so thankful for all of you out there. You give me meaning in life every single day. You know, I'm just, I'm a guy who sits here right now. I'm sitting in my guest bedroom with a mic. and, And you can ask the people who have come other. This is not any sort of fancy setup. I am simply 
I promise you folks, I am simply another bozo on the bus trying to make it through the day sober like many of you. I am no guru. I have no magic answers. I don't have any sort of insight that is unavailable to you. This, folks, is a we program. And my job is to come in here and to allow others to share their experience, strength, and hope. Yes, I share some of mine sometime, but I see it as my primary purpose to allow others uh, to carry the message of AA and the 12 steps, uh, and the 12 steps apply to, as you know, uh, all the, these other recovery programs. I am imperfect at best at carrying that message I know, but I try just like you, uh, and I know this, okay? I know that here's the thing. If I disappear today, you are going to go on just fine. Okay. Some of you uh, may miss hearing these episodes, but you will go on just fine. So I know you don't need me folks, but I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I need you. All right. David G, step 10 on episode 100. He is going to address many different things. He's going to be talking about resentments, always a favorite topic of alcoholics for whatever reason. Uh, and there's a great ants and elephant analogy that you'll want to listen to as you are uh, digging into this particular episode. Um, oh, what do you do when you walk out of the grocery store and you realize that that case, not case, that bottle or whatever you call it, that Tide, that dish detergent, uh, not dish detergent, <laughs> Tide, laundry detergent is in the bottom of your basket and it did not get rung up. David's going to address that. He talks about an experience he actually had with that. One thing I did not know about David, and that is uh, before he got sober, back with his uh, old um, buddies, so to speak, uh, he was known as the, the id kid. And as he says, uh, it was not really a compliment. He'll explain, he'll talk about that. And Wendy, or, or, or he's going to talk about his experience with being, we, with being placed in the position, the position of neutrality where alcohol is concerned. As always, I know that there are so many things you could be doing with your time. And I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to tune into this podcast and listening to a either a episode for the first time or another episode. If you want to be in the secret Facebook group, write me at John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com and provide me the email, please, that is associated with your Facebook account and I'll send you out an invite. Uh, so many times we have people saying the link's not working and most times that is because it is not the email associated with their uh, Facebook account. Account. There are a many amazing like-minded friends of Bill W. Al-Anon and other 12-step programs within that group. And uh, we would love to have you in there also. If you are not following me on the Instagram, the IG, that's when I like to sound cool. Uh, if you're not following me on the IG, please do as soon as you can. I am at at 
So wait a second. Can you say that? I am at at no. That that's double at. Um, I'm located at no. That doesn't work either. Okay, so I'm on Instagram at um, my handle in Instagram is at sober speak. Is that the way you do it? Hey, and by the way, that's all one word at sober speak. Anyway, if you haven't shared this episode with a pot, uh, sure. Either this episode or, uh, uh, another, or, or another episode or the, or the podcast at, as a whole with a friend, I would greatly appreciate it. If you do so, you just pause that little device that you're on there, honey. And you hit the share button and you take that share button out and you send that link to your friend or your family member, member, not member. What would a family member? You wouldn't want to send it to a family member. Nonetheless, you send it to a friend or a family member and uh, it may be just the thing that they need today. Now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome my friend, Mr. David G on episode number 100. Okay, everybody. So we are sitting here again. When I say again, uh, we've been through many different steps with Mr. David G. We're sitting here with David G. As I mentioned earlier on episode number 100. And David, I, I wanted to have you for episode number 100. I think I told you this, that you have been one of the most listen, you have been the most listened to individual on Sober Speak, and I've gotten so many great comments, and I, I appreciate you sharing your time and your uh, insight with all the listeners. Well, it's been incredible. You know, uh, I think it would be a mistake not to point out what you've done in these 99 episodes that precede this. You know, you've made a real impact on my life personally, being able to, you know, have this time with you and share and go over the steps and the big book and the program and the, the fellowship and do that together in, in your little studio at home here. And also what you've done to spread and carry this message all over the planet, you know, that I've been connected with people in different countries, have spoken to people in different states, all because of this podcast that you put together. I just, I don't know if it's been said by other people, but you you really have done a great service to AA and, and, and the program, the 12-step uh, movement that really has changed so many lives. And I, I appreciate that. <sighs> Well, I wasn't expecting that, and thank you very much, David. I appreciate it. And it's a we program, right? We all do this together. And I've said before that, uh, you know, God gets done what he wants to get done. If he wasn't using me, he'd be using somebody else. But I'm just uh, uh, thankful that he looked down upon me for whatever reason and decided that uh, uh, he could use me in this particular method. All right, so... Today, so we have talked with David about steps one through nine thus far in several different episodes. We split them up. I think one and two was the first one, and then we did two, three, and four. I can't remember, but I know we've done one through nine spread over, I'd say, four or five different episodes. And so now we have come up on step 10. And you know, I was thinking about having. Uh, episode number 100 and step 10 and i wish it was step 100 but obviously we don't have a step 100 <laughs> so we're gonna have to go with step 10 but isn't step isn't the number 10 like a like a, a derivative or something is that the word that you would use it's where, about it, 
What, the square root. Thank you very much. Very good. It is the square root. That's my education. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we are working on the square root of episode one hundred. We're gonna come. We're gonna spend this completely talking about step number ten. So, Mister mm. David. I'm just going to cue it up for you. I know the step 10 is continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Continue to take personal inventory. You know, I I thought about this a little bit as I was coming over today and, and how that's changed. You know, continuing to take personal inventory first. When I got here, I didn't know AA's principles behind taking inventory. I didn't know the methodology. I could have talked to you about taking inventory because I was perfectly ready and able to talk about anything, even things I really didn't know much about. Um, But I had to be educated in what it meant to take personal inventory. You know, so when it says to continue to take personal inventory, I can't help but believe what we're talking about is the type of inventory that we took in step four. Like inventory that is organized, an inventory that seeks to accomplish something. So this isn't a personal beatdown, a personal self-flagellation. Uh, this is a this is an opportunity to, for me to see what things in my life are causing me issues, where those issues are affecting me, and what I have done as a result of not being able to metabolize these difficulties in my life. Um, I learned that first and foremost in looking at my resentments because, you know, I wish it weren't true, but probably the number one problem that the big book identifies is my number one problem, and that is is creating resentments in my mind. Um, sometimes it looks like taking score in my personal relationships. You know, I do something for someone, I feel like I'm doing it altruistically, but then when the opportunity for them to reciprocate comes around and they choose not to live up to the standard that maybe I've come up with and my expectations, I take score that, you know, I did that for you on your birthday and what did you do for me? Or I, I took care of that uh, move that you needed taking care of, but when I moved, you weren't available. Or uh, I let you pick the restaurant we went to last time and this time when I suggested somewhere that I wanted to go, you weren't in the mood for Chinese or whatever it is. It's that kind of taking score element that takes, it happens in daily life, whether I'm at work and I feel like I'm doing all of this um, uh, menial stuff that everyone should share in and somehow it always gets heaped on me and that I'm a people pleaser and because I'm a people pleaser, people take advantage of me. And, you know, in other words, I develop these rifts and the rifts aren't necessarily uh, made aware to the people around me. Uh, maybe they do with maybe passive-aggressive poutiness, um, people asking me, you know, what's wrong? Is everything okay today? And, and me not being able to communicate with the people around me that these are the things I'm struggling with, which only compounds the issues that come up. It's, they say that it's not the elephants that ruin the picnic, that it's the ants. Well, I can tell you that's not completely true because I have had elephants trample my picnic in life, and they are definitely devastating. But in the day-to-day vicissitudes of life, the ants are what eat you up. And so this idea that somehow I'm just going to be so 
you know, spiritually enlightened now that these little things are going to kind of fall off of my back? Well, you know what? Sometimes they do. When I do the things I'm supposed to do every day in the program, when I'm aware of what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm aware of my personal powerlessness, that I am aware of the insanity that God can restore me from, when I am willing to, you know, offer myself, my life to the care of God, and to go on and take these uh, inventories that, you know, the program requires, then I find a healthy way to live my life. And I think that's what step 10 is about. You know, it's acknowledging that I'm already on my way with step one, two, and three, though I fall back and have to redo those things because sometimes I'm unable to take step three. Sometimes if something's really important to me or really irritating to me or really difficult for me, I find myself not turning my will over to God, but taking it on myself. I get this amped up feeling in my gut, maybe a little bit of the shakes, and I'm going to push through and make it happen. And uh, I can't say that that's never effective for me because that would not be true. Sometimes I push things through and I get exactly what I want. But more often than not, when I get exactly what I want, it doesn't feel good and it doesn't feel satisfying. And the carnage and wreckage that I've created around me with the people that I bulldoze through makes it really not worth it. You know, So even in my best moments, I'm a producer of confusion rather than harmony. And the reason that happens is I don't take step three, which means moving into step four, which is taking personal inventory. Step 10 is kind of that entire compilation. It's taking that personal inventory, whether I'm in fear about something, whether I'm having romantic difficulties, whether that I'm resentful that the world isn't treating me the way I think the world should treat me or acting the way I think it should act, whatever it is, and most things, frankly, fall under those categories. Um, If I am willing to look at those things and then inventory those things and speak to another person about it, maybe my sponsor, maybe a sponsee, maybe just a friend in the program, maybe someone who's in my personal personal life, my wife, my sister, my one of my kids, someone that I trust and knows has my best interest at heart, and especially is willing to say to me, David, you need to look at yourself here and what's wrong with you and stop focusing your attention on what's wrong with the rest of the world. These are the principles of inventory that they're talking about in step 10. And the next step in inventory that we're learned, because it happens between step four and nine, really, is what is my character defect here? Try to identify what is it that's being effective? How am I unhealthy? What is it that I'm seeing in this situation that is getting to me? Where is God in this? And when I get to that point, I know that I am not going to fix this broken mind with the broken mind that has the problem. And if I am willing to let those things go, I take step seven. I may say the the prayer officially, or I may just say, God, please take this from me. I can't do it on my own. And at that moment of humility, I am then willing to look at how maybe I've harmed others in the process of doing this, and am then willing to make amends. This is the process that is compacted into the statement, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. There's not some shortcut. There's not some other inventory that they're talking about, in my view. Now, that being said, through the years of recovery, I've tried a lot of different things that don't include all of those elements, and sometimes they've been effective. Sometimes I've had the humility to see where I'm wrong and immediately make a difference. I'll give you a kind of a pedestrian, newcomer, alcoholic experience. 
You're walking out to your car from the grocery store. Mm -hmm. You've just checked out. You spent a bunch of money. You're feeling good. As a newcomer, I felt good when I went to the grocery store. I probably bought more stuff than I actually used because I was buying healthy food and feeling good about myself and actually paying for it myself. And I loaded that stuff in the car and I got to the bottom of the basket and there was a big box of Tide that was $23 that they forgot to charge me for. Mm -hmm. And my first reaction is, huh, I just got free Tide. But then I have that moment that didn't used to come to me. Prior to my recovery now, I would have put that box in there and felt really good about that box of Tide. Because after all, like I've said in previous episodes, I only did something wrong in principle if I got caught. That is the way I came into this program. But today I'm now living a different life. I'm living in the life of the Spirit. And the life of the Spirit that dwells inside of me will not allow me to steal a box of Tide from Walmart. It will not allow me to justify that behavior. So maybe I get in the car, maybe I even start the engine, maybe I even start to back out of the parking spot. But I know that I've got to walk back in with that box of Tide and have that awkward conversation with the checkout person that I just left and they forgot to charge me. And yes, they typically look at you like, what's wrong with you? You don't want your free Tide? But regardless, the point is, is that if I want to live free, I have to be willing to take on these moments of indecision where I have a choice between living by principle or doing the thing that's more comfortable or easy in my self-centered view of the world. That was a lot. And, I'm, and I mean that in a very positive way. And so I'm soaking all that in. So I liked how you said you continued to take personal inventory. That was an extension of what you've already done during the first nine steps already. So it says we continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So go through the piece that on the, on the second step of the step, uh, the second part of the step where it, so, where it talks about admitting our wrongs promptly. Yeah, I needed to get better at that. First of all, it was always very self-serving for me. Um, I would apologize. I would step in and make things right in situations where either I knew I was going to get caught anyway or was fearful that I was going to get caught anyway and I needed to preemptively make that apology and acknowledge my mistake so that it would look better than if you just caught me red-handed and called me on it. Um, and I also did it when I wanted to get back in with people. Um, I think we hear about that a lot in the program, people wanting to make amends to old girlfriends or old business acquaintances. And really the motive is to get back in with them and, uh, and have that relationship again. And, and there's nothing wrong with having relationships again. It's that can't be the central focus. So this kind of brings... You know, your question brings me to something that is somewhat controversial. That's not the right word. It's somewhat different for different people in the program. Not controversial, although sometimes it'll be spoken about controversially in meetings. I don't think it's controversial. It's just some people do it this way, some people do it that way. And that is this concept of working the first nine steps once and then doing steps 10 and 11 and 12 for the rest of your life is the maintenance or growth steps. That if you do the steps right the first time, that there's no need to go back through them. And then you have the people who are of the school that you work the steps over and over and over and over. And uh, I fall into that latter group of people. Um, it's not that I was necessarily told to do that. What happened to me is in my second year of, or at the end of my first year of sobriety, 
there was an announcement at my group, the Trinity Group, and one of the old members, a guy named Roy C., who at the time had been sober 20, 30 years, he was holding a step study that was open to anyone. And I said to my sponsor, uh, Clovis, I asked him, uh, you know, should I do this? And he said, sure, any, any working the steps is good working the steps. And that started a, a, a habit for me, a good habit. And that habit was every year when Roy had that step study, unless there was some major conflict, I can't say it was every year for 10 years, but it was most years for 10 years, I would participate in that step study where we would go through the very preface from the beginning of the preface all the way through chapter six, and we'd finish our last last meeting with chapter seven working with others, and then we would go out and hopefully work the steps with more people. And I did that every year for the first 10 years I was sober, and then when I moved to Frisco, people weren't doing that where it was invitation open to anyone. There were step studies going on. I hadn't been invited to any of them, and I would hear they were going on because people would share about them in meetings, but it wasn't something that was open to all comers. And I felt like that, you know, I knew about something that was a little bit different. And so I went to Roy, got the step study guide, and started doing the step study at the Frisco group. And how many years have you done that now? Oh, gosh. Since I moved to Frisco in 2005, I started the step study in 2007. It's 2019. So we'll do, I guess, the 12th step study starting this uh, November. And so once a year, uh, for the most part, uh, I think you skipped one year. One year, year right? yep. Uh, once a year, you have an open invitation for people to come in, and you kind of get a place set up, mm-hmm. and everyone comes in. Kind of describe that experience. How many people start? How many people end up going to the end? Talk about that. So we typically have around 30 people start, and I would say we've had as few as eight or nine finish. I think you were in one of those where eight or nine finished. That was the one that started with like 50. And it went down to like eight or nine. That was a real learning thing for me, figuring out how to handle that many people. And that that example was one where I don't think I handled it very well. Uh, but we typically in the past five or six years have ended with maybe 15 to 20 people. So half to two thirds have finished. And you just start at the beginning of the book. Everyone right. goes through it. And it's not, it. A, it's not a lecture. It's not me standing up and teaching people the steps. I chair the meeting the first week and I maybe chair it one more time. And I'm just another boat on the bus. Um, I do the step work at home. We read Bill's, We read the doctor's opinion. We write about the allergy and what it looked like for us. We read Bill's story. We write about the progression of the illness like Bill's story. We read chapter two and three, and we write about our powerlessness, obsessive obsession. And we read chapter four, and we go into talking about you know our relationship with God and our prejudices. So in other words, the meeting is just a focused opportunity for people to share for one hour about their experience the preceding week with working that phase of the steps. Um, And it's been incredible. The best part about it, you know, they say, there's a line in the book, not they, the book says, uh, a fellowship will grow up about you. And that's what's happened. You know, any meeting I go to at the Frisco group, there's no less than seven or eight, if not 10 to 15 people that I'm sitting in the meeting with that I've gone through the steps with in those step studies. And it does, sometimes I'll look around me in the meeting while it's going on, and I'll just get this sense of well-being and home because there's people in every direction that I know I've gone through the steps with and that we've worked the steps together and we have that common bond, you know? And I can tell you that from sitting in those meetings, I can look around and tell you the people that I went through that particular step study right. with. And there is a uh, an addition. It's not like I don't have any bond with them, but there is an additional bond that you have yeah. with those individuals. Yeah, because there's... 
never a step study that people aren't going through times and trials and tribulations and they use the step study to get through that and we do it as a group and it's very community oriented and so back to step 10 continue to take personal inventory to me this working the steps every year formally with the book not just with one of my sponsees or just like doing a little uh you know uh spot check inventory but really going through the work um has been a part of my continuation you know i've i've read and studied the big book every time that i've done that and it's made a big difference in that the information's availability in my mind you know if i don't know something it's probably not going to help me and not saying that memorizing the book because i've never made an effort to do that at all is the answer that we somehow head knowledge is going to help you it's kind of like that saying i hate to bring up guns but it's better to have a gun and not need one than need one and not have one you know having this knowledge in my mind and having things shoot through my mind like for instance i'm in a conversation with one of my kids and they're telling me about what they want to do with their life what they want to do with their money who they want to be in a relationship, how they want to, you know, where they want to live. And I am on the edge of telling them what I think that they should do. And the thought will shoot through my mind, isn't he a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction out of life if he only manages it well? In other words, going through the book and reading those pages over and over again, isn't he even in his best moments trying to love my kids? I'm trying to love my kids. I'm trying to help them. I'm trying to save them from the mistakes that I made, which by the way, they're probably not prone to the mistakes I made because they don't drink and use drugs like I did. (laughs) But anyway, the point is, is that in my best moments, I'm a a producer of confusion and harmony, that it is my kids aren't God's grandkids. My kids are human beings equal in every way to me. And there's nothing that I have to tell them about their decisions that are better than what they have to tell themselves about decisions. If they're bouncing something off of me, it is almost always for my support. I am not to be the devil's advocate in any life, anyone's life. And so my point is, is that if I didn't practice this thing, that if I didn't learn these steps and what the principles are behind them and really have an understanding, I wouldn't have any hope of, of exercising that in my life. I would just be reaching for straws like I always used to do, you know, and that's not helpful. It's not helpful to me and it's not helpful to the people around me. And I can tell you, because of that, I do have the experience with sponsees, with friends in the program, with my children, with all manner of my family, my sister, who is way more accomplished at me than me in living life, that come to me and want to know what I think. In other words, They're not coming to me for my opinion. They're coming for me for my take on what a situation is because they know that more than likely, I'm not gonna shove what I think down their throat. And I wouldn't like that. When my So it took time with my kids because when my kids were little, I wasn't that good at it. But here's what happened. I worked the steps as a father of a six-year-old and a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old. Every year as they developed, I developed. And I can tell you this. I have made amends, I have straight up apologized, I have corrected wrongs of every manner with my now adult children, and all of that was made possible by paying attention to continuing this inventory throughout my life, formally and informally. Because there's no question, I'll give you a call or one of my friends in the program a call on a regular basis, particularly if I'm not feeling good. You know, if I'm feeling really good, I like that. When I'm feeling really bad, I tend to pick up the phone and call people. And that's super important 
But it's also important for me to recognize how I'm affecting other people. How am I making other people feel? It isn't all about how I feel. And sure, when I feel bad, I reach out to my sponsor or a friend in the program so that I can maybe find a pathway to feeling better. But am I, am I empathetic to the way I'm making the people around me feel? And if I don't do personal inventory, which I want to talk about now, what that has looked like for me through the years, if I don't do that personal inventory, I'm incapable you know, of, of seeing how other people might feel as a result of my behavior. We will be continuing our conversation with Mr. David G. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at www.soberspeak.com. There you will also find 99 other episodes besides this one. And you can also find the donate button on our website uh, if you wish to use it, if and only if the spirit moves you and you feel really good about using it. Uh, please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. David G. And, you know, I'm thinking about this analogy when you were talking about how these little phrases come up in your mind. And I had always heard it. I heard this uh, analogy once, and I really liked it. And that is, it's like when you throw a depth charge into the ocean, uh, and it goes down and down and down, and it sinks into an individual, much like when I'm reading the big book, or I'm praying, or I'm meditating, or whatever it does. And at the right moment, whenever it's supposed to happen, that depth charge goes off. And that's what I think about when those little phrases go through my mind at the right time, in the right place, in the right circumstances. And all of a sudden, I can utilize what I've been thinking about and hearing inside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and elsewhere. All right, so I want to ask you, David, about one of my favorite lines in the big book that is in the 10th step on pages 84 and 85 in the big book. Uh, it says, we have entered the world of the spirit. And that line has always kind of both made me feel excited and yet a little creepy because, you know, I think about what exactly does that mean? What what I picture in my head is just things going on around me that I cannot see, touch, hear, feel, smell. And so what does that mean to you when you hear in the big book, we have entered the world of the spirit? So when I was in my fraternity, they nicknamed me the id kid which is not a compliment. <laughs> it means someone who just does whatever they think will make them feel good at any given moment. The id, now that was a like a Freudian term. Yes, or, id and correct? ego. It's like ego, right. basically. So they okay. called me the id kid. That was a kind of an educated uh, way to call someone, uh, I don't know, uh, egocentric. a person egocentric and, and immoral. Um. <laughs> And so really, you know, I went around the world and there was some truth to it. The truth was, is I did whatever I thought would make me feel good at any given moment. And it, it, 
and I would worry about consequences later. And consequences meant how I affected other people and what retaliation they may do. And typically, the people who I caused the most harm to were family. You know, there's a old AA joke, you know, steal from your family, they won't prosecute. And uh, so I went around kind of hedging my bets on the situations that I was in. What could I get away with? What was, what, how much of this money could I take without them noticing? How much of this vodka could I fill up with water without them realizing it was half water? You know, it was, it was almost just this life of getting what I could get at any expense. And the expense that I didn't recognize that I was paying was the way I felt inside. Mm. Because when you're a thief, you feel like a thief. When you're a liar, you feel like a liar. Uh, and I, I've already mentioned in this this episode today that I kind of live by the principle that you only do something wrong if you get caught, and that anything else, you're really getting away with something. And what I discovered in working the steps, and I've discovered in sobriety working the steps, because we don't just stop making mistakes, some of them egregious mistakes, because we stop drinking. We only stop making mistakes because we're drunk. What I found out is a lot of things that I did, and I said I did it because I was drunk, isn't true at all. I did those things because I wanted to, and I got drunk so that I could drop my uh, lack of... (laughs) So I could participate in behavior that I wasn't comfortable participating in sober. So here I sit, a sober person, and you know I've heard it many times in AA, what, what makes an alcoholic different than a heavy drinker is when a heavy drinker quits, their life gets better. And when an alcoholic quits, they lose their only solution to life. And life becomes very painful, and we become very touchy, and, and, and that is our insides. That's our guts hurting. That, that, to me, is the spirit they're talking about. The spirit that I needed to work on is worked on in the steps. You know, where have I harmed people? Where did I develop resentments that gave me, in my view, the permission to treat people any way that I thought they deserved in light of how they had treated me? Where did these things pop up? And, and even as part of this inventory process, is this learning how to put out of my mind entirely the wrongs others had done? And look where the fault was my own. And in looking where the fault is my own is where I discover the things inside of me that make me feel bad about myself. And if I can discover those things and do my very best to right those wrongs and then continue in a life where I am no longer treating people like that, and when I do treat people like that, go to this go to these steps and this program and these principles and make right those wrongs. That world of the spirit is that clean feeling I have in my stomach, that clean feeling I have in my soul that allows me to sleep at night, that allows me not to live in fear all the time, fear of being found out. Um, And it also, you know, we don't talk about self-esteem, particularly in AA, although I think it's a big topic. Well, it is in the, it's right in the book, in the four steps. Esteemable acts is what I've heard in the meeting. You know, living in the world of the spirit is about living in the world of esteemable acts that can build up my character and make me feel like a better person by being a better person to the people around me. And God, I wish that wasn't such a challenge. I would love to sit here and say, yeah, that's easy. I always want to do the right thing. But that's just not true for me. It wasn't true for me drunk, and it's it's has proven to be difficult for me throughout the years I've been sober. And that's why I continue to do this. Because I didn't get struck perfect when I stopped drinking. I didn't get struck perfect at 10 years or 20 years sober. I haven't been struck so perfect yet. 
And so if I want to continue to feel good inside and be good to the people around me, it's going to be continued effort. And really, it's kind of working against the human nature that I guess maybe I was born with that wants to find the easy way around, wants to get what I can get, you know, uh, thinks that somehow comfort is more important than principle. There is another line in the 12 and 12 uh, that is uh, talked a lot about in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can't remember exactly what it was or what it is, but it's in the 10th the step. It says, basically, whenever we are disturbed... I knew you were going to bring this one up. <laughs> no matter what the cause, mm-hmm. there is something the matter or that we are wrong with us, whatever the case may be. Talk about that line a little bit. Well, the hard part about that line, and I think everyone probably has heard this spoken about and maybe thought to themselves, I know that I have thought to myself, you know, there's some truth to that. You know, there's some things that happen in the world that there are blameless, powerless individuals, and it's hard to look at those things and think that there's something wrong with me because I'm upset about it. And I don't have to give examples. We can all come up with our own from our personal lives, from what we read in the paper, what we see on the news, uh, just what we hear through the gossip tree. There are things that happen in the world that are very hard for us to metabolize, you know, to, to get through our systems without a lot of angst and anger. And so really the question for me of this is how do I best cope with these things? How do I best find my way through these things? Because it doesn't take a lot of spiritual effort to be okay with things that we like. It doesn't take any relationship with God really to tolerate people who you don't mind what they do or be patient with people who you like the way they act uh, or forgive people who you think forgive deserve, deserve forgiveness. The effort of, for me and spirituality and the program, it, it's what I kind of ruminate about when I'm having difficulties, is how do I get to a place of peace about the things that happen around me that are unacceptable to me? And so is, does the program have that? Does my relationship with God have that? In the beginning, I don't know that I believe that it did. I thought that there were certain things that no matter what happened, I, I would always be miserable about it, angry about it. And, and what I found was is that when I took the responsibility for my own behavior in these situations— whether this behavior was not doing anything or it was participating in some healthy way in the situation, whatever that might be, that when my behavior in these situations became something that I not only was comfortable with but felt good about, that, that most of the time those situations worked themselves out without my contribution. In other words, part of my problem with things that I find unacceptable is the feeling of powerlessness that I can't do anything about it. And Having a relationship with God and believing in God was never something that was easy for me. I'll tell you, in my sobriety, there have been times, particularly like an example is when my mom died. I had gone to church for my whole life, not as regular as some people and more regular than others. I had a picture of God in my head. I had a belief in the afterlife that I, I felt comfortable, that I believed that. Um, I had a, uh, a belief system that I walked around comfortable with, but here was the thing. For the first 11 years of my sobriety, everything in my life went great. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't have difficulties. I had difficulties. I had emotional, personal difficulties. I had marriage problems. I had a lot of financial problems. But the fact was, things got a little bit better for me every day, every year of my sobriety was a little better than the one before. And at 11 years sober, I was hit with something that was so brutal and so 
out of my realm of, of coping with that I was in this situation where my prayers did not comfort me. My belief in the afterlife did not comfort me. In fact, the opposite. What I found was that my belief in the afterlife seemed like a lie that I had believed and that I had been tricked and that I had tricked myself and that I would never see my mother again. Uh, I could go on and on about how the suffering felt during that time period of grief. And what happened, which I don't know if I did it, I don't know if God did it, maybe God did it for me and I was just the one walking the deal, is during that time of pain and suffering, number one, I did what I could do. I was there for my mom, all that I could be for her. I I, I spent the night on the floor of her, her hospice bed. I, I took care of her in every way that I could. I spent as much time as I could with her, and, and I have no regrets about that. Um, in terms of my family, I was kind as I could be to the family around me, especially the ones that were hard for me to be kind with. I swallowed my thoughts and my anger and my uh, intolerance and, and spoke with kindness and love for them and treated them with respect and dignity to the very best of my ability. I did not stop going to meetings. I did not stop praying and meditating, even though sometimes my prayers towards God had F-bombs in them because I was so angry that this could happen to my mom. I did not stop working with my sponsees or doing my readings in the morning or my prayer and meditation. And slowly but surely, I began to feel a little bit better every day. And it took really a few years before I could think about my mom, about even a happy thought and not have it turn to, oh, but my God, I'll never see her again. But what happened slowly over time is I began to be able to think about those happy thoughts and see her smile and see how proud and happy she was for me. And so in other words, even at the worst times, yes, it's about me that I am having these bad feelings, but it's also because it's about me that I have to take responsibility for who I'm going to be in that situation and take on my relationship with God that was taught to me in the 12 Steps so that I can walk the walk that I said I was going to walk even when times were bad. It's easy to walk the walk when it's going your way. You know? Mm. There's another line in the 12 and 12, excuse me, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, where uh, that is a, is a much quoted line uh, in the rooms of AA, and it's talking about our code, and you're going to know that one, right? Mm-hmm. And it says, love and tolerance of others is our code. As you know, that is much easier said right. than done. It sounds it sounds great and I and I buy into it. But sometimes when day-to-day life hits me about uh, when day-to-day life confronts me, I am not the guy that is saying love and tolerance to you, my fellow man and woman. You know, I disagree with what you just said about yourself. It may not be the first thing that comes into your mind, but I have seen you and watched you turn to love and tolerance really very quickly. So my knee jerk is much like yours. When something's happening that seems like, how can that person act that way? I think our self, our self, you know, our selfish self 
does react, but I do think that the practicing of these principles gets us to the other side of that, you know? And I've seen that with you, and I know that that's happened with me, you know? It's like when I got to this idea of forgiveness and talking with Clovis about it, and, you know, I it was about my dad, and it was when I was continuing to work the steps. You know, I did all those step studies. Well, for the first, like, eight years I did these step studies, every year it was the same resentment toward my dad. It had morphed because now I had kids and he was treating my kids the way he treated me, which wasn't horrible. He wasn't abusive. He just ignored them. You know? He ignored me. And my resentment toward my dad was really an anger that was really fear inside of me that I wasn't good enough. And I didn't want my kids to experience that fear that they weren't good enough. And so my resentment toward my dad in reference to the way he treated my kids was growing. It wasn't shrinking. And I remember talking to Clovis about it, and it it came down to this tolerance, you know, this tolerance and patience and forgiveness of others. And he said, you know, David, anyone can tolerate and forgive people that they think deserve it. If you're waiting for your father to deserve your tolerance and your patience and your forgiveness, then you may be waiting a very long time and you'll be living in a place of intolerance and impatience and unforgiveness. And you can count on one thing, you will suffer from that tolerance and intolerance and impatience. And I really heard him that day, you know? And I started doing the things, what he told me to do is, and this isn't in the big book, I think it probably started in the Bible, but treat other people the way you would like to be treated regardless of how they behave. And he asked me, how would you like your dad to treat you and your kids? And I told him, I said, I just want him to pay attention like on our birthdays and on holidays, I want him to be there for us. And he goes, all right, well, on his birthday and on holidays, I want you to be there for him. And I started to do that. And you know what happened? I started to feel better. I lost my resentments towards him and I'll be danged he began to change. He began to be a part of my children's lives and a part of my life. And so it was more of a, instead of standing back and judging the world for what it's doing wrong, participate in the world and do the right thing and show other people how to behave. And I didn't get that. Maybe they teach that in school. You know, I I keep bringing this up. It's a goofy thing for me to bring up, but it's just, it's something that pops in my mind. When I see these people with what would Jesus do bracelets on, that's really brilliant. If I could walk around my life and think about how would God have me behave in this situation, that's probably what the 10th step is really about. Uh And you know, there's something I want to talk about the 10th step, because I know we're going to run out of time here, and I don't want you to cut me off before I say this. (laughs) Go for it. So when I got sober... In the six years, in 87 to 93, I was being forced into AA for multiple different reasons. First, getting in trouble, then my own problems and wanting to be sober and not being able to stay sober. And and I heard all different sorts of things. I heard things like, you have to tie a knot on the end of the rope and hang on, or back your ass into the corner and hang on to your chair until the the, the uh, cravings pass. And, and then I thought of that line from that book that I didn't read, Men Live Lives of Quiet Desperation. And I had this problem. I had a physiological reaction to drugs and alcohol when I started to obsess on them. Um, I've had different discussions with people whether this is the obsession or this is the craving. It doesn't matter. A lot of people like to think that the craving doesn't happen until after you take a drink. And I'm not going to get into that with them. I'm just going to tell you my experience. And that was I had a feeling in my gut, kind of like being in love with a dose of nausea, (laughs) butterflies with vomit on them. 
in my gut, and I named it the gut. And when I started to really crave drugs and alcohol, I would get a feeling in my gut that was overwhelming to me. It was made me have to go to the bathroom. It was a physiological reaction to my need for drugs and alcohol. And when I when Clovis asked me at the beginning of our meeting together if uh, if I would use, if he put some of that crack on the table in front of me, and I said, you know what, Clovis, I may not use it now, but when you left the room, I would probably go use it. And he said, well, at least you're being honest with me. And then we got to the 10th step in the big book, and we started to read those 10th step promises. And those 10th step promises say unbelievable things unbelievable things. It says we will be placed in a position of neutrality. We have not sworn off. The problem has been removed. And back in 1987, 1990, 1992, when I was struggling with this disease, I could not imagine how steps on a wall or a book or any kind of sponsor or talking about things or getting on my knees and praying was ever going to do anything to solve that physiological reaction I had to my obsession for drugs and alcohol. But I'm here to tell you, I read that with Clovis. I read that I would be in a place in a position of neutrality. And he asked me again, what would you do? And I did everything I could mentally to conjure up the gut. I thought about New Jack City and the hotels on Harry Hines and my pledge parties and my fraternity and smoking weed, everything I could come up with to try and conjure up that feeling in my stomach of craving. And it was gone. It had been removed. And just like it said in the book, we have been restored to sanity. And the sanity that I was restored to at that moment was the sanity of understanding that because I'm an alcoholic and drug addict, not only can I never safely use drugs or alcohol again, I will be put in a position where I don't even want to. You know, I'm picking up my 26-year chip tonight, and I'm probably going to get cards, which I really, that's fine. I appreciate it. But there's nothing to congratulate me about. I have not had the craving or obsession to use drugs and alcohol in 26 years. And that is the miracle of the program that's brought up in the Step 10 Promises. And I, I just wanted to make sure we talked about that. Congratulations on your 26 years, David. Thank you. That's great. One other thing I did want you to talk about, and while you were talking about your dad, and, and I've heard you tell this uh, story before, and I think it's worth sharing with the listeners. Will you talk about that journey, that car ride that you were having with him from Maine, I believe, coming back to Texas with some furniture, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, and what preceded that, and just take us through that ride. Yeah, so my my grandmother had fallen. She lived in a house on Main Street in Maine where my dad had grown up and my dad's dad's dental office had been on the ground floor. And anyway, she had fallen down and they finally convinced her that she needed to go into a some sort of retirement community and and somehow they convinced her to come down to Texas. She'd lived in Maine her whole life, not within a hundred miles of where she was born. She had lived her whole life. And here she came at 94 years old to Dallas. They even got her to fly, which she was horrified of flying, but they could, they didn't think she'd be comfortable in a car for three days. And so she flew down and then my dad and I flew back up and we packed all of her belongings in a U-Haul trailer. And uh, he had asked me, and this was kind of it in the, Somewhere in that process, I was just talking to you about where I was doing for my dad what I would want him to do for me and my kids. So we're probably four or five years into that process. And I, uh, 
and I was riding down with him, and we've got this Maine Coon cat we bought. We were going to let the kids name him, but we kept calling him Buddy, so that name stuck. He was Buddy the whole time we had him. And um, we drove down in that in that U-Haul together, and it took three and a half days. That U-Haul would not go over 65 miles an hour. <laughs> it had a governor. It was driving us both crazy. And somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, we were driving across this real beautiful part of the mountains. And I don't know what was going on in my dad's mind. We had been talking about all sorts of different things. And all of a sudden, I heard him say, you know, the worst mistake I ever made in my life was leaving you and your mom and your sister. And when he said it, it took a second. It startled me. And I looked at him, and, and I looked at him next to me instead of looking ahead of me on the mount, the mountainous road <laughs> that I was on, that I literally almost wrecked the U-Haul. And I, once I straightened it out, I said, what, what did you just say? He goes, yeah. He goes, I've needed to tell you that for a long time. And, um, and it was the first time in my life that my dad had ever told me that he had made a mistake. And, and, I, and the reason that's an important story for me is one, it was a launching pad for him. In other words, he had started to, and it's, it's funny that you asked that because I kind of brought this up that he had rejoined my family's, he became the dad that I always wanted him to be to my children and to me and to my wife at the time and my sister, where he was really involved and would come over and spend time with us and invite us to do things and come do things with us when we invited him. He was always there for birthdays, always there for Christmas, always, he would go up to my sister's, he would fly to my sister's and spend things. Thanksgiving at her house with her and let her cook and cook with her. And she'd not, we'd not gotten that in our lives. And really that trip, that drive, that moment that he was able to admit and acknowledge his mistake was a launching point for him, for his life to change. And, you know, I don't know what effect I had on that. I can tell you this, that I was taught by Clovis that in these difficulties in my life, in these difficult relationships, that all I could really do was lead by example. And that example was to be based on the 12 steps and the principles and treating other people the way I would like to be treated. And so my dad and I ended on beautiful terms. When he passed away in 2012, we were the best of friends. I was with him on the night he died. I was holding his hand and laying in his bed next to him. And... Um, and that was all because of what we're talking about today. And really, you know, not to trivialize in any way the step or what I just told you, but to kind of connect them, this continuation, you know, and it's taken all different forms. You know, some people do a written 10 step at night. Some people say that's their 11th step. You know, there's an argument about that because it's confusing in the big book. It doesn't matter. Whatever written inventory you do, I did for many years kind of a, uh, a feelings inventory at night before I went to bed, before I did my prayer. I would run through my day and see if there was any negative feelings inside that were unresolved. And if there were, I, I got up and I figured out what it was and made a commitment to either call that person the next day or call them that moment if it was appropriate and get that thing right that was wrong inside of me. And I did that. And I'll, I'll say, I think most people would acknowledge that some nights I didn't do it. Some nights I just fell asleep. Um, and I've done written inventory. And I'm going to this, this is not a plug for anything, but this is important for me to say. 
The thing I missed in my non-written inventory that I've gotten doing the written inventory that I do sometimes three or four days a week, sometimes once a week, sometimes once every two weeks, but they come, you know, because I send them to you. Um, what I get in that inventory that I did not get in the non-written inventory was really looking at the good things I do for other people. Because that's part of the 10th step or 11th step, whatever you want to call it. Where have we added into the stream of life? What have we done for others? Have we been thinking about ourselves or have we thought about others? And you know what? This program has done something for me that I didn't even really notice when it was happening. It's given me a life where I'm of service to a lot of people a lot of the time. And if I pay attention to that, it kind of helps smooth over the difficulties of my life. It kind of makes me realize that for every bit of bad there is in my life, there's a hundredfold good. And it gives me an opportunity to pay attention to that. I always say that, uh, that line from that song, uh, I think it's called Butterfly Kisses. This is, after all that I've done wrong, I must have done something right. And that's just saying that you know, I know I've done a lot of bad things, but I look around me and the kind of life I have, and I think, well, I must have done something right. Yeah. This has been fantastic, Mr. David. Thank you for sharing uh, on step the, t- oh gosh, I'm going through the, the square root of 100. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying, that was all going through my head at once very quickly there. So we're going to close this up with page 164 of the big book our book excuse me i was going to do the the extra paragraph there i'm just going to go with one here abandon yourself to god as you understand god admit your faults to him and to your fellows clear away the wreckage of your past give freely of what you find and join us We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, and I hope that we, you get to meet David and I as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. David G., thanks for coming in here. I sure do appreciate it. Thanks, John. Well, thank you, Mr. David G., for taking time out of your schedule to come by here and sit with me and record episode number 100 uh, regarding uh, step 10. I do appreciate it. I appreciate you as a friend, and I appreciate you as a guest of the podcast. You've meant so much to so many people. And once again, thank you for coming in here and making that recording. And uh, if any of you out there want to get a message to Mr. David G, feel free to reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. I will be glad to pass on a message to him. Or if you have any feedback regarding any of the other speakers, or if you just want to give a little shout out to me, uh, I am at John J-O-H-N-S, SoberSpeak.com. All right, now on to a little of listener de la feedback or feedback de la listener. I can't remember exactly how that goes. I think I've tried that before, but nonetheless. Anyway, Joe writes in regarding Bob S. Part two. He says, hey, John, Joe from California here. Just finished listening to Bob S. Part two. What a great 
episode, exclamation point. Your show keeps me engaged. I always hear something I can relate to. Your show is a good tool in my newfound sobriety as I still get screwy thinking sometimes. Well, welcome to the club, Mr. Joe. I still get screwy thinking sometimes myself. And another Fun fact, I once heard an interview with Greg Kinn, who sang the breakup song 8675309, and it was about a girl that he broke up with when he was younger, so he made the song to get back at her. Apparently, it was her actual number. Don't know if that's something you wanted to broadcast, just thought it was funny. And he, then he goes on to say, oh yeah, almost forgot to say good day, mate. Thank you, Joe. So he's referencing a couple of uh, uh, previous uh, listeners feedback segments where uh, I talked about Jenny Jenny and uh, sort of singing that song A675309 and he's also referencing my very very poor impression of Australian people uh, when I say good day mate sometimes but nonetheless all right Joe thank you for writing in Michael writes in and he says hi John I live on Long Island. I was born and raised there. I'm on Wall Street now as an executive and I work in New York City. I did two trips to rehab, one in 2017 and one in 2018. That devastated me. I could not understand how I continued to relapse. My last bender was over the holidays and my sober date is January 5th of this year. It was a terrible bender and I didn't think I would survive as I drank so violently I couldn't really explain it. I was terrified and I wanted to end it so badly. A lot of people can relate to that, Michael. I committed to a 90 and 90 and I got a sponsor I knew I could be honest with. And just in case those of you are out there that don't know what 90 and 90 means, that means he was going to commit to going to 90 meetings within a 90-day time frame, period, period of time, however you say that, you know what I'm saying, in 90 days. I found Sober Speak because I needed stuff to listen to during my commute on the train to keep me focused. I love it. Some of the speakers are incredibly power, but powerful, but all are great. Couldn't agree more, Mr. Michael. Bob S. had me in tears on the train this week. David S. and Laura R. are other standouts, but they are all great. John, I often go to Dallas on business and will be there in November. I may need advice on good meetings in the area. I used the app once recently and ended up in an incredibly rough neighborhood, but it worked out okay. Thanks for your efforts on Sober Speak. It is the best on this topic, Michael. Well, thanks for writing in, Michael. And as I wrote back to you, if you do need some sort of feedback on uh, various meetings in the area, I would be happy to provide some input. Come on down to Texas, y'all. Anyway, Jason writes in and he says, Hey, John, please add me to the secret Facebook group. And he gives me his email. Thank you so much for passing my info on to David G, which I did. The gentleman that you just got through listening to to on episode 100. He said, we talked and it was great to hear his words. And it it was an amazing comfort at a time when I needed it. I am out of work now for six months, away from my family and my home group. 
Early one morning, I was listening to the Jimmy D special, and I heard you read my letter on the podcast. It is hard to explain how wonderful that made me feel and how connected I felt to the rest of the world in that moment. That feeling lasted all day with me and has left a small part of me forever changed. Oh, wow. That's so good to hear, Jason. I just realized sometime after that morning that I am never alone. And if I feel that way, it is only an illusion created by the bondage of self. Oh, you put that so well, Mr. Jason. I have only to look into my heart to find all the people I love whose time we have shared forever and they and it and lives in there in my heart. Cheers, Jason L. Well, Mr. Jason, cheers back out to you. Thank you so much for your letter. I sure do appreciate you writing in. I'm saying letter. Like something like people you know, you rarely get letters nowadays. Email is what I meant, but I'm sure you understood what I'm talking about. Anyway, Helen writes in from the United Kingdom. She says, John, can I please? Oh, I'm sorry. I I started to do a bad English accent, but I'm going to, I'm going to forgo that at this moment. I'm sorry, Miss Helen B. She says, can I please, uh, can I join please into the secret Facebook group? Uh, because I listen to you every night and it's a true blessing and I don't get to meetings every day. Love your work. I suffered an almost deadly stroke five years ago and begged for gin in the hospital thinking it was all I needed. I upped my drinking further after release from the hospital because of the poor me excuse, got through my divorce. So poor me, especially raising two kids on my own who got the brunt of my alcoholism, by the way, I lost two jobs. Life is great. Sober now though. Thanks, Helen B. Well, thank you, Helen B. in the United Kingdom. Appreciate you writing in and listening. And uh, as I always say, I'm glad we can be a small part of your sobriety. Kathy writes in from the great program of Al-Anon. She says, hi, John. I found Sober Speak by Googling, 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 AA podcast. I'm an Al-Anon member and new to the program. The podcast gives me hope for those suffering from addiction in my life. I have so many family members and friends that struggle. Many are in AA and have found recovery. I know the program works because I have seen so much recovery. My father, my brother, and my best friend, to name a few. I live in California in, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Vacaville. Uh, It's considered East Bay and close to Napa and Sacramento. I'm fortunate that there are many meetings to choose from near me. I started going to meetings on July 16th of this year after finding out that my 21-year-old daughter has a substance abuse problem. I suspected that she had one, but it was confirmed by one of her friends. I had hoped Al-Anon would give me the recipe to fix her. Yeah, I know what you're going to find. Oh, wait, here you go. Instead, I have found that it gives me the tools for living that have made my home and work life so much more enjoyable. That's what a lot of people find out when they go into Al-Anon, as you know, Kathy. I heard someone say they were a, quote, responsibility absorber 
in a meeting. I'd never heard that, Kathy. I like that term. That was me. I'm so grateful to learn that I didn't cause it. I cannot control it and I cannot cure it. As a wife and mother, I have put everyone else first in my life, and now I'm learning to take care of myself. It is an interesting journey to figure out what I want and need. Good for you, Kathy. She says, I love your podcast. AA encourages getting a sponsor and doing service immediately in the programs, so... I have done that. I listen to you on my way to work in the morning. I find that I handle the challenges at work so much better because of the principles of the program when they are fresh on my mind. Thank you for your experience, strength, and hope, John. I look forward to listening to you tomorrow morning on my way to work. I especially enjoy Jimmy D. I started arriving early to my meetings to help set up after I listened to him on the Sober Speak Live event. All my best, Kathy. Well, you know, as you know, Kathy, I sent your comments on to Jimmy D. When people are mentioned in the feedback I get, I send it on to the various uh, uh, speakers or guests that I have on here. And uh, Jimmy D., had me send a message back to you saying that there are some meetings out there in that area that he highly suggested, and I think you're going to be able to go to them. So anyway, I'm just glad I can be an in-between on uh, between the listeners and uh, the guests that come in here. John F. F. as in Frank writes in and he says, by the way, the title of this uh, email was sayings, sayings, like S-double-A, big A-A, Y-I-N-G-S, sayings. So, and you'll understand what that's all about when you get through reading, when I get through reading this. He says, hi, John, I wanted to thank you again for your great podcast. I eagerly anticipate each new episode and listen as soon as it posts. A while back, I wrote to you about how I listened to your show, but had never attended a meeting. Well, that has changed, and I now attend several meetings a week. I used to think of your show as the meeting between meeting or, or the meeting instead of meetings, but now I think of it as a gateway meeting. Ha ha. <laughs> Well, I am very happy to be known as a gateway meeting. <laughs> that's, that's a great way to put it, John. Uh, anyway, he says, on your show and in meetings, I often hear little sayings and acronyms that are helpful reminders in my recovery. A couple of weeks ago, I took the time to compile all of them in a list, and I have attached them in this email. I'm sure... You know most of them, but I thought you might enjoy checking it out anyway. Regards, John F. Well, John F. completed a Word document of all these various sayings that he hears in the meetings and on this podcast. And so I asked him if it was okay if I could publish these in our secret Facebook group. And I did. I put it out there. And for anybody who wants to add on to those AA sayings, you're more than happy to look at that. He actually put his contact information in there and you can contact him and add to his list or just add on to your own. But anyway, thank you again. Again, John, and thank you for letting me post that in the secret Facebook 
group. Gerhard writes in, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, G-E-R-H-A-R-D, Gerhard. He says, hello, John, today I am 149 days sober. That's great. I stepped into my first AA room on May 6, 2019, after a more than five-decade drinking career. I am 62 now in a couple of weeks. I am one of those alcoholics who made it through life without arrest, primarily because I fled my home country to avoid exactly that. Well, that'll do it. Uh, I lost my wife of 32 years to early onset Alzheimer's in 2017 and shortly after sold everything in Los Angeles and moved to the mountains, in parentheses, which was Eastern Sierra. I thought the isolation would be exactly what I needed. Oh, no, I know where this is going. And my alcoholic brain was right. The rails came off, and I had almost two years of blackout drinking. By the grace of God, a good friend came into my life, and because of her, I walked through the doors into my first meeting. I have not had a drink since. Well, God bless you, and God bless your friend. I moved to Palm Springs, and now we have a beautiful life together. She is in CODA. I am an AA, and for those of you who may not know what CODA is, CODA is a, a Codependence Anonymous. And he says, Gerhard says, I am lucky to have a good sponsor, and currently I am working on my four steps soon on the fifth step. I found your podcast through a Google search, Google, 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 and listen to your episodes and listen to your episodes once, sometimes twice a week, an episode at a time. Much like in the rooms of AA, there is always something to take away from the share of your guest. I don't have a favorite speaker of your of yours. But, uh, to the contrary, to the contrary, I do enjoy the the diversity. Thank you for you and your service. Best Gerhard T. Well, folks, that right there wraps up episode number one hundred. And I know I said this on the front of the episode today, but thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for for giving me a a, a place to to put out my thoughts for letting these guests come in here and share and and you're there to listen. If nobody was listening, this thing wouldn't be around. And I appreciate your time and your efforts and your energies that you give to this podcast. I will most likely be back next week for episode number 101. I say it every week. This is one episode at a time. God bless you. I love you. Keep coming back. It does work if you work it. 